Mago Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And about a month or so ago, the Red Book, another great channel on Tolkien stuff on YouTube, which you should totally check out if you haven't, did a video on the lifespan of orcs. How long do they live? Are they immortal? And of course, this question comes up naturally when we think of orcs as being corrupted elves. If they're effectively elves, then shouldn't they be immortal? And wouldn't that be really problematic? Well, he did a really good job of addressing that question, but another related question and the context in which a lot of the material for his video came up was in the process of Tolkien's reconsideration of many different aspects of his Silmarillion mythology, and in particular, the nature of orcs. What are their origins? What, what's the metaphysics behind it all? In the really early days, he had very different ideas about what orcs were and how they worked than he did much later on. And a lot of the change came about because of the way that he wrote The Lord of the Rings and some of the things that he did there. So what I want to do in this video is explore the problems that developed because of the writing of The Lord of the Rings, how Tolkien tried to address those, and what that might have looked like for possibly a change in the origins of the orcs. So let's take a look. One of the first things to note on this topic is that in the very early days, when Tolkien first started writing the Book of Lost Tales material back in the 1920s, roughly, he had a very different idea about how the orcs operated. They were not what we think of as orcs in based on the published versions of the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. They were effectively kind of like golems. I mean, they were basically made of clay and, you know, stuff that he effectively animated with his own will. And this was actually kind of true of a lot of different enemy things that we get in the Silmarillion. Back in the early Lost Tales material, like, dragons were effectively mechanical. They were they were kind of like tanks. Uh, if you actually read the descriptions, they're giant metal things that are spouting fire and whatnot. And you can see this come through in a lot of different ways. So, in those early days, Tolkien had this view that Morgoth was basically just directing automata to do whatever it was he needed to do in the war. This changed a great deal, however, because when we get to the Lord of the Rings, and even earlier in The Hobbit, there's a sense of this, we get the very distinct impression that orcs are not merely robots being controlled by some other will. We get orcs who are, you know, fighting their petty infights. They have their, you know, squabbles with each other. But we even hear them talking bad about their own leaders, including Sauron himself. We have, you know, the, the orcs in the Tower of Kirith Ungal having a conversation about how something has slipped. And even the great ones, meaning, you know, like the Nazgul and even up higher, Sauron, have screwed something up about the way the war is being run. And they're giving all these ideas about, you know, when all this is over, let's go set up with some lads, you know, in some mountains somewhere where we won't have any bosses. So the orcs, when we get them in you know, kind of their own environment in the Lord of the Rings, which is rare, but it does happen, we get this sense that they are independent wills, or they have independent wills, and that can lead to them being, if not openly rebellious, at least inwardly 
hostile to their own leaders, in this case Sauron, and of course earlier would have been Morgoth. So there's this very clear distinction between orcs as we get them in the Lord of the Rings and his very early versions of orcs, and this starts to create a lot of problems. Tolkien begins revising his ideas about the orcs in light of this, because one of the other things that comes up in the context of the Lord of the Rings is when Frodo and Sam are having a conversation, and Frodo says, evil can't create, it can only, you know, mock or corrupt or, you know, whatnot. It doesn't have any ability to create anything on its own. And we can see this, too, in the story of Aule and his creation of the dwarves. Aule makes the dwarves... And Eru, you know, kind of peers his head in, basically, and says, Hey, what you doing there? And Aule's like, uh, hi, nothing. Uh, but it, you know, it comes out, basically, that Eru says, Look, you've made these dwarves, but they can't do anything apart from your own will. Whenever you're not paying any attention to them, they just sit there limp. They're robots. And so, Eru, Iluvatar, has to be the one to grant wills to the dwarves, and they become his children by adoption, as he calls them. So that's the only reason dwarves are not automata. And so the thing, the same thing applies ultimately to orcs. Melkor can't create orcs. He can't create things with independent wills or sp- spirits or souls or whatever you want to call it. He can't do that. Only Iluvatar has that ability. He's the only one with the power to do it. So if Morgoth can't do that, and yet clearly orcs do have this ability... Where do they come from? And this, of course, is part of the reason why he eventually develops the theory that they were, you know, corrupted elves or the thing like that. But then he goes further, and when we start looking at Morgoth's Ring, the tenth volume of the History of Middle-Earth series, there are several scraps of paper where he writes down various different ideas of you know, how to solve this orc problem, because it does pose a real problem. He starts looking at the chronology. Does this work with the chronology? Can we make all this fit? You know, can we say that they're elves? This doesn't seem to work either. So I want to go through some of the ideas he presents in this body of papers and get an idea of what he was thinking in terms of how to make all this work, given the structure he had in publication, namely Lord of the Rings, and how he could make that work more or less with the legend that he already had in the Silmarillion. So in Morgoth's Ring, there are basically three main texts that deal with the orc problem. And in the first one, he mentions, well, only Eru can create independent wills. We've already talked about that. He also mentions Morgoth could not so corrupt a race as to make the corruption heritable. And so that basically is trying to take the idea of, you know, the fall of man could be something that Iluvatar or God himself, parallel, could step in and say, okay, whatever you've done is so horrible that the problems arising from it, there's going to be something heritable in the race as a whole that passes down because of what happened. And according to the legends that we get, men at some point had a fall which resulted in their own mortality, and they believed that originally they were not mortal. We get this in the Athrabeth, which I've done a video on, and I can link to that as well. So he says, because of these two things, it doesn't seem very logical that elves would be really the source for where orcs come from. 
He also considers the possibility that orcs are maybe the descendants of Maiar who, you know, procreated with non-immortal things, which he kind of toys with this idea in the context of, well, we've already got the fact that in The Lord of the Rings, Gwaihir and Landreval are said to be descendants of Thorondor, who is, you know, one of the original great eagles in the Silmarillion legends, and so since they seemingly are Maiar and messengers of Manwe, okay, and we already, of course, have the, the very clear example of Melion and Luthien. Melion is a Maya. She weds Thingol, an elf, and has Luthien, who is, you know, mortal, mortal in the sense of not, not an Ainu. She is a, you know, an earthly child. So we have some precedent for this. And there seems to be kind of a necessary way that, that this goes, too, because of the Lord of the Rings saying that they're descendants, which originally wasn't necessarily part of his plan, but it is now because it's published and there's not much he can do about it. So he's like, okay, well, that's that's an option, but Iluvatar would not grant Fear, which is his elvish word for spirit, basically, or soul, depending on how you use the term. He would not grant Fear to such corrupt you know, forms, you know, if if evil Maiar started procreating with something, you know, on Earth, and the result was this horribly corrupt race of things, he wouldn't provide Fear to them, because that would just seem to be not really, you know, I mean, you, you've basically got an irredeemable race of things, and it's just like, why would you even bother? So he kind of rules out that possibility as well, but he also notes, well, but it can't seem to be the descendants of men, because men show up too late. We've got orcs running around in Beleriand much too soon for men to have been the source. So he's got all of these moving parts that he's trying to reconcile in this first paper. So in this first piece, what he concludes is that orcs must be something like a kind of beast or animal that has been corrupted into more human-like form and perhaps... Corrupted elves might even have been brought into the gene pool. Don't want to really think about that too hard. Um, but effectively, they are not automata exactly, but their wills really only do come from Morgoth in that they're kind of like trained animals. They don't do anything of their own will because they're not free agents in the way that humans, you know, humanoid, dwarf, elf, man, those kinds of beings are. They have, you know, the ability to act on their own free agency and that kind of a thing. Orcs are more animalistic and therefore they don't. He gets around the problem of the seeming rebelliousness of orcs by basically saying, well, because his will was one of hatefulness, this would necessarily breed inner conflict within these things because they can't by nature be cooperative. He also kind of gets around the problem of the Fayar issue by saying, well, being able to talk is not really a sign of being, you know, having a Faya. It's it's really just them kind of like reeling off records that Morgoth sends them so that they can talk in ways to, you know, put his plans into effect if necessary, but they're not really talking out of their own head. So that's one solution he comes up with. But we can already see that there's kind of some problems with that because that doesn't seem at all like what's going on in The Lord of the Rings. And of course he's recognizing these problems and he's got more papers to consider 
the same issues from different points of view. In the second of these two of these three papers, he considers the theory that, well, Morgoth he couldn't create anything, but his ability to corrupt individual wills was so great that maybe it really does make sense that they're corrupted elves, and then later corrupted men were added into the stock as well. And he also throws in the idea that some of the the really great orcs, the the leaders or whatnot of his armies, would have actually been corrupt Fey, uh, not Fear, Maiar, who were you know took the form of orcs, much like the Balrogs were fallen Maiar, who just took really terrifying forms. And he said these particular leader orcs would have been, you know, really demonic in in their appearance. You know, they would have been much more terrifying than your average orc. And it also kind of explains, he says, that you have some names that just seem to pop up over and over again in the histories of orc chieftains or whatnot. Which is interesting because, like, none of the legends that we have published actually do that. So it gives you an insight into things he might have been thinking about. And we get hints of that in the history of Middle-earth as well. But he mostly considers kind of the same information and just comes to a slightly different conclusion in this paper. Another interesting tidbit, though, in this in this second piece is that he says that trolls would have been classified basically as orcs as well. And basically they're just bigger, stronger versions of orcs. And it's partially also in the context of giving the etymological, from the elvish perspective, meaning of the word orc, which would have been kind of anything that caused terror or something like that. So it's not necessarily just limited to what we think of as the orc species. In the third piece, Tolkien goes kind of the the route of saying, well, it seems hard to reconcile the coming of men as being the starting point for orcs and, you know, whatnot because of the chronology. And yet, because we know that they are, you know, they seem to have their own independent agency and whatnot, this still seems like the most logical option. And the reason that he comes up with is, you know, that it fits with what we know about men, what we know about orcs, and what we know about Morgoth. Men are more corruptible in some ways than elves are. Orcs act in some ways more like men than they do like elves. And, of course, Morgoth had tremendous power, again, to corrupt people. And here he definitely kind of comes down on the end of he's corrupting individual wills. It's, again, not a racial thing such that, you know, the entire race is necessarily inheriting this corruption but, you know, once you're in that, you know, if you're born into that, you're going to end up being corrupted with everybody else, too. So it's kind of a, you know, the necessary outflow of, of the kind of situation created by that initial corruption process. He mentions in this regard the fact that men are easily corrupted and can even be made so corrupt as to become orc-like in their habits and even to breed with orcs and therefore... You know, this seems like a pretty logical way to, you know, to explain it. And he mentions specifically here the fact that Saruman, of course, we know did this. He bred orcs and men, which tells you that men can be made to do that in certain circumstances, which is a terrifying thought, but there you go. 
He also mentions the fact that orcs tend to be short-lived, a thing that we never really get explicitly in any of the published text. But if you think about it, most of us probably kind of assumed that anyway. Uh, so there's this... That kind of goes back to the Red Books video on how long do orcs live. This is kind of him thinking about that process and saying, orcs don't live that long, therefore it doesn't make sense that they're elves. So, you know, you've got that problem. And this is him kind of addressing it, saying, well, that's, this is why it makes more sense that they're really corrupt men. On the topic, again, of the corruption of the individual will, he points out that the corruption of the orcs was so complete that they really had almost no means of resisting the domination of Morgoth's will. And therefore, any time he turned his attention to an orc individually, it's like they felt his eye on them and were aware of him. And they really just had no choice but to obey pretty much whatever he wanted them to do. As a result, when Morgoth was expelled from Arda through the Gates of Night, many of these orcs who... He says, you know, the the number of orcs that were ever under his direct kind of supervision was always a relatively small proportion. But those who were, because of their constant domination by his will, after his expulsion from Arda, basically wandered around witless and either died or committed suicide. That's how, you know, mind-wrecking that whole process was. He further went on to explain that Sauron, even though he was not Morgoth himself managed actually to obtain even greater control over the orcs when he was ascendant in power in Middle-earth, and that this actually can help solve the chronological issue of how do we get all these orcs if men are, you know, coming up later and Melkor is imprisoned in Valinor and all this stuff. And he says, well, probably what actually happened was Melkor came up with the idea of corrupting the children of Eru, or the children of Iluvatar, and you know, making a mockery of them in that way, but Sauron is the one who actually carried it out. And it's interesting because he goes into a little bit of a side here saying how Sauron was actually more capable in a lot of ways than Morgoth in achieving Morgoth's goals because he was still a little more cool and calculating, whereas Morgoth was just the furious haste of Morgoth is the the term that Tolkien uses, was just you know, he had ideas and whatnot, but, I mean, he was mostly just destructive. He didn't really have a very good head on his shoulders, so to speak, for creating or following through. And so the idea came from Melkor, but Sauron, during Melkor's imprisonment in Valinor, was the one actually going out, finding the men, corrupting them, and turning them into orcs. So he says, this is how we get around the chronological problem. Now, of course... Part of this also is related to his reworking of the whole chronology of Middle-earth to begin with, because at the same time he's doing a lot of this thinking about orcs, he's also reworking, you know, when do elves pop up, when do men pop up, and he changes that pretty significantly, because in the original, I shouldn't say the original, in the published Silmarillion, men don't really appear until the rising of the sun, and then, like a few hundred years later, they show up in Valerian. In later revisions of this chronology, Tolkien will have men awaken much closer to time-wise to when the elves awake, and therefore there's much more time for Morgoth or Sauron to come in, capture, and corrupt you know, mortal men as opposed to just the elves. And so this is how he gets around that chronological problem.
another short little piece of paper where he kind of goes on to a little more detail, but which is associated with this third and final main piece, discusses how the amount of energy required to directly control any number of orcs was, you know, it took a lot of his energy and power, and that's why it was always very few that he did that with. But the ones to whom he did that basically obeyed him instantly, even to the point of just committing suicide. If Morgoth had, you know, just had a orc directly under his control and say, hey, slit your own throat, the orc would have just done it unhesitatingly. So, again, we see him carrying through that idea of, you know, Morgoth is, this is the extent of Morgoth's power. And this also goes in tandem with a lot of reworking that he did with Morgoth in general, showing how Morgoth, you know, unlike in the Silmarillion where we get the idea that he's, you know, he's more powerful than the other Valar, but not so much more powerful that he's just, you know, can't be even fought by them. In the Morgoth's Ring stuff that we get about Morgoth specifically, a lot of it has to do with how he is vastly more powerful than the rest of them, such that if he had not expended so much of his energy on dominating other wills and, you know, just corrupting things and people and whatnot, he would not have been able to be conquered by the other Valar when they attacked him in an effort to safeguard the elves on their way to Valinor. And so he's reworking all of this at the same time, which explains a lot of how he gets to this idea that the expenditure of his own willpower is how he manages to corrupt these orcs so thoroughly. So there's a lot of things tied in here, but what we see most interestingly is that Tolkien is really wrestling with the metaphysics of his own universe at this point. Earlier on when he's first starting the writing of the Lost Tales and whatnot, he's just trying to write kind of interesting myths and putting out ideas that may seem good in a narrative, but aren't in the way that the Lord of the Rings is a very tight, rigorous explanation of a world. It's after the Lord of the Rings that he really starts putting a lot more thought into this sort of thing, which explains a lot of why he never published the Silmarillion in his own lifetime. He was working through so many different ideas, the, the chronology, the metaphysics, how those all affect the story, and this is just one particular example of it. And the most interesting thing to me about it is how he's wrestling with this idea of a race that seems corrupt as a race, how we make sense of that when, you know, you have only so many ways that it could be achieved when Melkor can't really create independent wills, but also the orcs seem to have those. So, you know, he's really putting a lot of interesting thought into how do I make these fantasy elements that I have, you know, made critical to my storytelling in my world, how do I make them work now that I am being a lot more careful about how I explain you know, backstories and make everything philosophically coherent. And that, to me, is why this particular, you know, ideation that he goes through about how to solve this problem, it's a really good example of what he's doing with a lot of different stuff. And the Morgoth's Ring volume, just in general, is full of stuff like this. Him trying to go back to those old stories and say, okay, I have to spend some time thinking about this and really put 
you know, thought into how how does this whole system work as a system? And this is, you know, one of the things that we love about the Lord of the Rings and what is very different about the Silmarillion. Because the Silmarillion really does kind of just skim over most of this kind of stuff. But it's interesting to think what would have happened had Tolkien had enough time, would he have been able to, you know, come up with something that was still just as mythologically powerful as the Silmarillion, but which was more well thought out and therefore more grounded. Even if he doesn't give you all those details, it could still be in the background and, you know, for anybody who wants to put the thought into it, to recognize, yeah, this all this is a coherent system and it all works. So, and that's not to say that the Silmarillion doesn't work. You know, it it, it works great as a mythological narrative, but it is very much a mythological narrative, and it does raise many questions that are not so easy to answer. And this is Tolkien trying to answer one of those questions, and it's fascinating to see his mind at work. So, I hope you enjoyed that video and looking into the mind of Tolkien as he wrestles with a significant problem that he kind of created for himself in terms of his own storytelling. If you did enjoy the video, please do give it a thumbs up, share it around, place some comments in the comment section below if you have other thoughts about this or similar topics you'd like to have discussed or analyzed because there's plenty of them. And if you want to find me on Twitter at JRRTLore, you can find some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions in my profile. And I am also on Odyssey, Rumble, and I have podcast versions of these as well. And, of course, you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.